Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. Um, my guest today, Alyssa Rosenberg, is a, is a columnist and critic at the Washington Post. She's really sort of a, a pioneer in uh, sort of writing at the intersection of art and pop culture and politics, um, and is somebody who I really wanted to sit down and, and sort of reflect on uh, on that intersection and on sort of the tendency toward more politicized criticism, more politicized reactions to art and sort of how Trump plays into that, where we might be going in the future. Um, I don't know that we we fundamentally answered these questions. It's it's like a very artsy conversation where you have a lot of food for thought. You you deepen your emotional and intellectual wisdom uh, without necessarily knowing what comes out. But I think that's good. Complexity is good. Embrace it. Listen. And, and I think that you will you will feel things. You will think things and you'll come away ultimately a better person. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Alyssa Rosenberg, is a columnist with The Washington Post, a, a longtime writer on, on pop culture and, uh, you know, other uh, related matters. We used to work together at Think Progress, um, and uh, I'm really glad to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, the, the genesis of this is a little bit of a of a different thing for the weeds, but you know, still good is I was rambling on Twitter as I sometimes do. And I said that I felt like with Trump out of office, that there was like less politics in people's reviews of things. And that I found that to be a kind of, um, salutary change and and a little bit in a weird way i think like sort of what joe biden had promised us uh in in america that politics would be more politics and you know today like they've rolled out this infrastructure bill and like it's of course important right but i think people don't feel like well i can't review an album without it somehow also incorporating my take without it being infrastructure day yes exactly (laughs) i'm like the highway funding formula Uh, but you know you're somebody who really sort of pioneered uh i think writing at the intersection of of politics and, and pop culture so i mean i wonder how you how you feel about this like am i am i just totally full of shit here No, I don't think so. Um, This is a hard question to answer because it involves turning back the clock like 10 years, which is basically as long as I've been doing this professionally. Um, And, you know, in mentioning my bio, you forgot to give yourself credit for making me the making me someone who does this full time since you were the person who got me in the door at Think Progress. Um, I think that there has always been a strong tradition of politically engaged cultural criticism, right? Um, There has long been the understanding that the pop culture that we watch, that we export to the world, that, you know, people spend hours and hours a day consuming, you know, gives us a sense of what the world is that's not politically neutral. Um, You know, I've done a lot of research on the way that the police have been depicted in pop culture, which was essentially part of Hollywood's kind of grand bargain with the federal government uh, to avoid government regulation. Um, And one of the things that Hollywood did was sort of commit to depicting law enforcement as competent and, you know, ethical and good at doing their jobs as part of a larger, you know, sort of message about the stability of society that it was going to send in exchange for not having to go through a formal censorship process. So, 
you know, there have been people who have been writing for literally decades about, you know, gender roles, about race, um, about militarism in pop culture. Um, but I think that it was not considered a primary topic for a lot of mainstream critics for a long time. The people who were doing that kind of work were writing in political publications or working in the academy. They were not necessarily, you know, writing the New York Times or, you know, Yahoo movies or some things. This was not what Rotten Tomatoes was all about. And when I started working as a critic full-time, I think treating that as kind of a primary concern was considered somewhat eccentric. I remember going to the Television Critics Association press tour for the first time and asking some questions about representation in studios lineups or asking Bob Greenblatt, who was at that point running programming for NBC, why, if he was talking about rebooting or redoing all of these shows built around white ensembles, they weren't thinking about bringing back something like Living Single, which was in their content library and had been you know, popular and really culturally influential among Black audiences who were really underserved and actually getting laughed at in the room uh, or arguing with Aaron Sorkin about the newsroom. And again, it's sort of Keith Olbermann worship. Um, and I think really being treated as something of an oddity, not in an unkind way, just in that, that those were not the sorts of questions that people were showing up and asking. And again, what was sort of a fairly mainstream press and industry event. And I think that the shift on that happened before the Trump administration. You had, you know, Oscar So White as a hashtag was created, I think, before the Trump administration. You've had people like Melissa Silverstein um, who have been tracking who directs what and, you know, how much women get to talk in movies for you know, years in the Academy. But I think there definitely was a shift towards being more conscious and engaged around those questions. And then they really took primacy during the Trump administration. Blaming it solely on Trump, um, I think, is not quite accurate. But I do think that his election was a galvanizing event for a lot of people who were you know, politically interested, but not necessarily politically engaged and wanted to feel like their work was in some way contributing to a larger conversation about the cultural forces that Trump had unleashed. I also think Trump himself represents this sort of extraordinary fusion of politics and culture that we are still kind of figuring out. And so it, you know, you had a lot of political reporters who were fundamentally covering the administration like it was a reality show. And so that's a fusion that kind of went in both directions. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I would, I guess, sort of draw a a distinction. I mean, there's a certain fuzziness here, but, you know, something like Oscar So White, right? That's a political complaint about an industry, right? It's not a critical evaluation of a particular film, but rather an observation about a pattern across movies, right? Well, it's an observation about how politics shapes taste, right? It's it's a suggestion that um, you know, the members of the Academy, who used to be a lot whiter and frankly a lot older than they've become over the past couple of years, very um, valued certain kinds of storytelling, um, certain kinds of performances, certain uh, sort of directorial grammar that were biased towards, you know, a group of actors that were biased towards uh, you know, certain kinds of subjects. So I think it's harder to disentangle the politics and aesthetics there than mm-hmm. it might initially seem. Um, I mean, I think the question, the sheer question about sort of who gets to be a member of the Oscar, of the Academy is is a political complaint. And I think right. that Cheryl Boone Mills, who was um, president of the Academy for a long time, recently stepped down, you know, addressed that by just expanding membership a lot and inviting new people. Mm-hmm. And you are seeing, especially in this year's lineup, you know, a reflection of different kinds of tastes um, in a way that is artistically interesting. You know, there, there's a lot to be said about this year's Oscars and just how completely bizarre <laughs> they are considering the movie year that we just experienced. But, you know, I do think you see those tastes shifting some um, in a way that is not easily extricable from politics. Right. And then, but, you know, you would also see something, right, that like long predates Trump, right? Like the idea of um, uh, a Bechdel test, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, I, I think 
the the point that she's like originally making in that comic is that it's so rare for a movie to explore the sort of interior lives of women as exactly. separate from men's romantic interests. It's not like it's not like looking at one movie yep. that's about men and being like, ah, it's illegitimate to have a story about men. It's the observation that systematically exactly. you're not telling stories about women, which I think is a, I mean, it's literally a pre-Trump complaint, yes. but like it's a different, it's a different mode of political engagement with pop culture, right? It's an, it's an observation about the trends that exist and the society that we're living in and how that influences people and i mean i always thought that that was like super important because like this is this is the world that we live in and what kinds of stories are represented you know matter to people um i don't know you know and and like that will continue to be incredibly relevant yeah and i think that I mean, the Bechdel test, it's worth remembering, like literally comes out of a cartoon um, from Alison Bechdel's incredibly funny, great, long running comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, where you have a conversation between two characters, one of whom complains that she just wants to see a movie that's about two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. Um, And to see something like that, you know, capture a spirit of frustration that has lingered for a lot of women, something like that, you know, it took off, but it started as a joke. Um, (laughs) But I think that Yeah, what we have seen is different in a couple of ways. I think there is more of a tendency in film and television criticism, in sort of just narrative art criticism, period, to stop treating what you're seeing on the screen as neutral in some way, to look at, you know, okay, we've taken for granted that, you know, the military is treated as a benign institution. You know, what does it mean, for example, that the most successful movie franchise in the world, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, constantly tell stories about these sort of quasi-military, quasi-intelligence organizations. What does that say about our response to 9-11? I think that's interesting, right? It's, you know, you don't have to discuss that kind of observation in a way that's automatically thumbs up or thumbs down. This is problematic. This is, you know, great for America. Um, But you can look at it and say, like, that's not neutral. That's a choice. Or if it is neutral, it's because we have internalize these assumptions about sort of how you solve problems and how you respond to threats uh, in such a way that we don't even sort of see them as distinct or interesting anymore. And then I think you see something that is partially a response to politics and also a response to sort of precarity in both the film and television industry and in the criticism industry, which is pieces that make arguments that individual works of art are, you know, sort of bear political significance or have the ability to change things. And look, there is no question that art can have a political impact. You know, I think like Norman Lear's television shows had, you know, a real impact on bringing different kinds of families into households across the country and sort of sparking conversations that might have been difficult to have otherwise. You know, Ellen DeGeneres, her coming out personally, you know, made like gave everybody in America a gay friend in a way that absolutely had an impact on people. But pieces of art that have that kind of discrete impact are fairly rare. More usually, pop culture has its impact kind of in the aggregate, right? Like if every depiction of a Black man that you see on film and television is a criminal, that creates a reinforcing impression. Something like The Wire maybe kind of explodes that, but, you know, the the exceptions are rare. And so... You know, you have seen this cycle where you have critics who, I think even compared to journalism as a whole, which is not in a great place, I think criticism is in a pretty tricky position. Um, There are not a lot of full-time critic jobs anymore in the traditional, like, I am going to review everything that comes out this week and we're going to, you know, have a sober consideration of everything that is available so we can tell you how to spend your time. Those jobs, there are just not many of them anymore. A lot of those roles, you know, even like a place like the New York Times relies really heavily on freelancers to sort of fill in for the stuff that its critics aren't going to get to in a given week. And, you know, I think that criticism as an occupation is really attractive and interesting to people. I mean, it is awesome to get paid to go to the movies. It is <laughs> awesome to get paid to sit around and watch television all day. Um, it does weird things to your sense of what counts as leisure, but it's pretty awesome on the whole. I think that's a great that's a great point, right, about the the sort of shifting 
market for, for criticism, right? I, I started following recently this really funny Twitter account called Zero Star Reviews. And it's like, <laughs> it's like the, you find like, it's like critics like panning things that are now famous and, and beloved, usually from the 90s. Um, and though this is not the point of the count, but it's of the account, but it's like a visceral reminder that it used to be that, you know, mid-sized cities would employ somebody yep. to like review new rock albums yeah right like there would be like one guy in tulsa doing that job a different guy in minneapolis doing that job a different guy in cleveland and you just don't have that quantity of full-time critics um in the way you used to and so one of the ways that you can make a stronger argument for writing about you know, every piece of film and television that gets released or every rock album that gets released is to say, you know, this is not merely an aesthetic experience that we need to do as sort of consumer journalism to help people decide whether they want to spend their time and money this way. But this is politically significant and needs to be covered because it's engaging with a larger debate. And as someone who thinks, you know, this stuff is just politically interesting, I am all for that kind of writing. But I also think it has proliferated in part because it is a way of defending the profession um, and sort of giving it significance at a time when it's harder to keep alive. And when it's harder to keep alive in part because the amount of this stuff has just proliferated a lot. Um, John Landgraf, who runs FX, has for years had his staff sort of keep account of how much television is getting produced. And it is astonishingly more than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And that has created a really fragmented, weird audience. Um, you know, you now have outlets like HBO Max and Netflix saying, oh, this is our most watched thing ever and giving you a metric for that in like the millions of minutes or <laughs> not even saying what that means at all. But there are just very few mass cultural events left. And, you know, if you're going to write about something that even 500,000 people are interested in, that's a harder sell in a lot of ways because of those 500,000 people, maybe 10 or 15,000 of them will find their way to your review. And that's potentially after the fact. Um, so I think you have a lot of economic forces that have combined to make criticism a profession in need of self-defense. And, you know, I think self-justification is maybe a little bit unfair, but you know, people are trying to keep a profession alive um, at a time when there is when the audience is much more diffuse and when the market for it is much more precarious. And I'm sympathetic to that. It's a it's a hard thing. Let's let, let me just, let's take a break. And, and I want to I, I want to sort of return to this this question of economics. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. 
you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. The other thing that, that I perceive, at least, that's sort of related to that is... I feel like because of some of the technological changes, it's become harder for critics to champion a particular work in, in a way that, that sort of functions recently. Um, a bunch of, there was like a lot of talk online about, uh, the, the nineties cop show homicide, uh, which was great. Right. And this is the kind of show that, you know, if, if I was just like, what's the show, you know, imagine what the Wikipedia entry said, right. You would say it was a critical darling. Yep. Right. That the, that the ratings were not great on NBC, but everybody was always talking about how amazing it was. And it was this kind of, um, I don't know, like little engine that could sort yep. of phenomenon. And something that was really sort of kept alive by the sort of the critical and award season love for it in the sense that, you know, this was something that was maybe going to be a loss leader for you, but it would earn you a lot of goodwill by keeping it alive. Yeah. And so like knowing you could accomplish something like that sort of encourages a certain um, aestheticism, right, in in your work, right? That like if telling people something that's not popular is like actually really good can like keep it a lot, like keep, you know, talented writers and actors and directors employed making this thing you love, then that's like a good motive to actually go do it and i feel like today's like metrics driven industry it's like netflix doesn't care what anybody says about emily in paris right <laughs> no, like it they're, they're, does not. They're, they're gonna make an assessment based on whatever their assessments are and like decide what gets renewed and what doesn't but i think that you know that's sort of true of critics but i don't understand like just being completely honest and i probably more than a lot of critics you know, read a lot of business-oriented trade press about the industry because I think it's really interesting. I have no idea how the film and television markets are about to start functioning, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I just have no clue. Um, The threshold for what it takes to stay alive on network television has plummeted in the time since I've been a critic. You know, something like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is, I think, an extremely funny, you know, kind of interesting, engaged cop show, has stayed alive with like a million live viewers on the air. That makes Uh no sense. I have no idea how the ad rates for that are working out to keep it alive. I have no idea about the syndication deals that are working for it. I just, I don't understand it. You know, Netflix has kind of operated like Amazon in a lot of ways, um, at least Amazon in the early years, in that it has had just an insane cash rate, burn rate, aimed at growing its subscriber base through original content, which has worked for it. I mean, Netflix has a ton of subscribers, although a lot of those subscribers have been there for things like The Office that are now spinning off to other streaming services. You know, Disney and Warner Brothers have effectively decided to cannibalize the theatrical business model that was what made them work financially for almost a century in favor of sending stuff to streaming services, right? And I mean, the average American doesn't go to the movies that often, right? Movies are expensive. And if you can get someone to commit to spending $14.99 a month on a streaming service, um, as opposed to buying a movie ticket once or twice a year, like that's a pretty good trade for a company. But it remains to be seen in the long term, you know, whether you can do something like that. I mean, Warner Brothers gave Zack Snyder $70 million to reshoot and re-edit uh, the Snyder cut of Justice League. And I don't think there's any way that that alone is going to bring in sort of the signups that justify that. So I don't think anyone has any idea what is going to be the metric for keeping a show alive or for getting a movie greenlit in the long term? I mean, everything has just gotten so incredibly weird in the past couple of years that I don't understand how the business model makes sense. And, you know, yeah, you you can't champion something as a critic very effectively when decisions are being made by totally new metrics and in sort of an algorithmic black box. 
But I feel a lot more sorry for people who are trying to sell movies and television shows under these circumstances and have no idea what to say, you know, in terms of the financial viability of their work. I mean, theoretically, maybe it's awesome if you're like, your business model appears to be setting enormous pallets of cash on fire. Wouldn't you like to do that in service of a heartwarming family drama about a bunch of Korean farmers, right? Like, maybe that's just much easier, <laughs> but... I don't know that it can last. And so it's just, it's a very weird environment all around. But you, but you, you mentioned Brooklyn Nine-Nine as, yeah. a, as a show with sort of questionable economics. I, I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's very, it's very funny. Nine-Nine! But, but this is an example of sort of like kind of what, what I was talking about in, in like Trump era stuff that, yeah. you know, just reading some headlines that exist, right? It's like Brooklyn Nine-Nine's backlash and criticism explained, you know, is Brooklyn Nine-Nine propaganda? <laughs> the complications of liking Brooklyn Nine-Nine as a black man, you know, Melissa Fumero called out the Brooklyn Nine-Nine remake in Canada. Um, <laughs> is Brooklyn Nine-Nine a progressive show? And, you know, I, I think it is a, accurate observation that like this goofy sitcom probably does not deliver like real talk about policing in new york city in 2020 like that's like yeah. like i think that that's true but like it, there's something not like wrong to me about like one person pointing that out yeah. at some point in time but as such a like focal point of analysis of like what is up with this show, right? Like as opposed to, you know, like its qualities as a sitcom no. or sitcoms roles in anything, right? I mean, I think I think I even said, you know, I, I, I think I was like trolling people at one point and I was like, you know, you realize all these characters would be Trump voters. And then like people, people got mad at me. And then I got mad at myself because <laughs> it's like, why, why, why am I spoiling this show for myself? <laughs> like what, what is the point of this? Um, so I adore Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I've interviewed Dan Gore, who's the co-creator and showrunner of the series at length. And, you know, I think that this gets into an interesting dynamic, right? Which is that Brooklyn Nine-Nine, especially in its early seasons, explicitly positioned itself as a show about a repudiation of a certain kind of policing in New York. Um, you have, you know, this conflict between, uh, you know, a detective played by Andy Samberg who idolizes like all of the old school New York cops who are going around like beating people up and coming into work drunk and like doing crazy drug busts and getting to be the, you know, do the French connection, uh, who's like obsessed with Die Hard. And then he gets as his new commanding officer a, you know, black gay captain who came up in the NYPD during sort of the tail end of that period and just found it both really miserable and like not very effective at fighting crime. And so to the extent that people are thinking about the politics of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, it's because Brooklyn Nine-Nine explicitly wrote politics into the show. And, you know, Gore, Dan Gore, has talked to me a lot about how you know, there is this interesting question, right? Like, can you depict the world as it should be without kind of whitewashing it as it is? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting question for art that has aspirations to say something about how the world should be. And I think Brooklyn Nine-Nine, basically more than any mainstream network police show, has engaged with the question of whether or not this style of policing that Hollywood has valorized works at all. Um, and if it works, like whether it's good to do anyway because of the costs. Um, and it hasn't done it that much. It hasn't done it in a way that like prevents it from being just an extremely funny, quite endearing show in the style of Parks and Recreation or something else, right? Like it has never sacrificed joke density for earnestness. And I'm really curious to see what the final season of the show is going to be like, in part because I know that Gore and, you know, the actors on the show have been really deeply engaged with, like, how do you, how do you make this after Black Lives Matter? Mm -hmm. Like, does the balance that we tried to set in the early seasons, like, work and make sense? Um, do we feel good about doing this? And I think the show was actually initially supposed to be back this spring and has been pushed back to fall. And I would not be surprised if that's because they're wrestling with it a little bit. It's it's hard, right? Because in sitcoms, the characters are all sort of fundamentally likable. Yeah. 
right? Like, you know, there's like characters on the show, right? Like Jake's obsession with Die Hard is silly. Yeah. Um, the, I, I forget the like the like old guy detectives. Uh, who, yeah, Scully and Hitchcock. Scully and Hitchcock, right? Like they are being made fun of, yeah. but they are. They're recurring characters on a sitcom. Right. I mean, the show the show fundamentally likes them and wants right. you to like them as well, even <laughs> as you find them absurd. Which which is different from like The Wire has a pair of characters who are similar to yeah. Scully and Hitchcock, right, in the first season. And who are kind of contemptible and exhausting. Right. But, but because it's a whole different tone of show. Yes, exactly. Like David Simon can actually portray them as bad. Yeah. Like these are like lazy guys who are scamming the public, impeding the investigation. You you, you can indict the system yes. in like that style of show in a way that like you're never going to do in a sitcom. Of course not. I mean, I, you could almost argue that politically sitcoms are institutionalist, right? Mm-hmm. They sort of have to be. But to go back to sort of the original question that you were asking about whether I mean whether this is sort of a good way to consume this kind of show by like sort of castigating yourself. I, and this is maybe sort of minority position among politically engaged critics, I tend to think that people should watch a lot more stuff that they feel like a little guilty about watching, or they should consume more stuff by authors whose politics they think are awful. And I think that you can read those authors' politics against their work, or, you know, read the tensions of a show's intentions against what it actually achieves. And find that sort of productive and interesting without making a moral purity crusade out of it. You know, I know for a lot of trans people and their progressive allies, the J.K. Rowling sort of increasingly increasing investment in the fight against various aspects of the movement for trans equality have been really painful. And I get that. But one strain of the response to it that I found interesting is this sort of sense of betrayal. And, you know, I, again, I sort of get that. Um, The Harry Potter books are broadly sort of an argument in favor of tolerance um, and in sort of what you get out of a more pluralistic community. Um, They also have you like crazy anti-Semitic goblin characters who are like obsessed with money and private property. Um, Like, I don't love reading those as a Jewish person. Um, But I think Rowling sort of inconsistencies and imperfections and what might be termed like kind of political human frailty, like actually make the books more interesting in a way. Like she, you know, she is not I don't know why I would expect her to be politically perfect. And it's interesting to know that someone can write with great empathy and also adopt political positions that can be sort of personally cruel. I think that human complexity is expressed really beautifully in the Harry Potter books. You know, I mean, a lot of the adult characters are weak or compromised or make decisions that cause individuals a lot of pain, even as they think they're acting in service of larger goals. And reading Rowling's personal politics against that, I think, makes the book sort of more poignant in some ways and also just illustrate that human beings are really complicated. People you love will disappoint you. I think that that is just true of the message of the Harry Potter books and also adulthood and being willing to sit with that is, you know, a productive set of emotions in a lot of ways. You also have there, right, the question of like what's in the books and what's the author doing, right? So, I mean, I think that, you know, the the goblins in the books kind of kind of raise my my eyebrow as as a as a Jewish person. It seems like we are playing with anti-Semitic stereotypes um, and using magical creatures to to depict them. What I found like genuinely kind of shocking was when they did the movie adaptation because you're changing things in an adaptation. Adaptations are so much more visceral. And like you didn't need to make part of the characterization of the race of greedy bankers that they have really long noses. Yeah. Right. Like that was a like this had already been discussed. Yep. And like then this like subsequent artistic <laughs> choice is made. And I'm watching that. I'm like, I am like actually upset that they that they did this. That being said, like, I don't believe that J.K. Rowling or anyone involved in the movie is, like, politically anti-Semitic, 
Yeah. Right. Like she like she's not involved like as a human being in the world and any like overt political activity is that, that we, impact that me of. as a Jew, <laughs> yeah, as, as a Jewish like, person. Right. Yeah. And I would be genuinely surprised. Right. Like somebody if it turned out she was some smart ass would be like, well, didn't you see the goblin thing? Yeah. Why are you surprised? But like I would be surprised. But what she has done, right, is become a very vocal participant in UK debates about trans rights and trans equality in a way that obviously are going to alienate um, people who who think she's on the wrong side of that argument. And, you know, you are not like nobody has to like a book by an author who's making you mad politically. But I don't think that that's like in the books. Yeah. Right. And I think that, you know, I'm not someone who really believes in authorial intent um, Mm -hmm. or as the best way to read a text. Right. That like what the author says they intended is like how you have to interpret a book. And, you know, unless you're like Philip Roth, I don't think someone's persona necessarily determines the core of the writing. I mean, I really want to say I am sympathetic to people who find this painful. I think, you know, Rowling's sort of big statement on her beliefs here is just riddled with kind of strange assumptions about gender identity and why people transition and expressed in language that is you know, intended to be sympathetic and comes across as kind of cruel and unfortunate. So I I do sympathize with people making those sort of individual decisions that, you know, this is a book that's too painful for me to revisit. What I struggle with more is a sense that the reputation of the book should be retconned in the light of Rowling's political development, right? Like, I don't think J.K. Rowling's views on trans people don't, to me, implicate the power of the writing in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows when Harry is like walking into the woods, understanding that he's going to die and sort of appreciating the physical sensation of being alive for what he thinks is going to be the last time. Like, I think that's just, there is wonderfully powerful writing there that is not implicated by the writer's politics. Um, And I think it is, it is, or at least should be possible to say and sort of differentiate between the sentiment, it is too painful for me to consume this. Uh, I don't want to give this person money. And this book is bad, or it's sort of been retrospectively discovered to be bad. And I don't think all of the criticism that does the former does the latter, but there's definitely some of the latter. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I don't want to give this person money. I think it's like a super valid reaction to being mad at somebody. Yeah. Right? Like for doing something, right? It is actually not a, like a critical quote unquote stance yeah. like at, at all right it's but like it is like it's your money yeah right absolutely. And, and you don't need to give it to people who you feel are doing like harmful things in the world uh with their money and and, and influence um but i do also I, I mean i remember this thing where like people were mad at taylor swift for like not I don't know, like um, campaigning for Hillary Clinton, campaigning for Hillary Clinton. Right. And then she like did become more political. Yeah. Right. And then other people on the other side were mad at her for campaigning for for Democrats. And I both like, of course, think celebrities should agree with my political opinions and tell people that I'm right about everything. But also feel like that's like that doesn't seem like a super like sane way to engage with the world. Yeah, I mean, I think people want the world to be consistent, right? And the world is not consistent. Um, it's just not. You know, I Toby Keith's politics drive me nuts, but he has a great voice. Um, mm-hmm. And do I wish that he was, like, not a Donald Trump supporter and didn't, like, sing about how, you know, lynching is awesome? Uh, yeah, I really do. Like, I wish he had had sort of Kenny Rogers or Don Williams' career, but, like, The timber of his voice is separate from his politics for me. I think it's just, I don't envy artists today, right? I mean, I think the one person who sort of stuck the landing on this pretty well is Dolly Parton. But that's in part because she doesn't say anything super controversial, right? Like, I mean, it's basically like gay people are good. I am happy to have gotten the Moderna vaccine that I got. I turned down an opportunity to get, you know, a Medal of Freedom from Donald Trump, but also I wouldn't do it from President Biden because I don't want to be seen as political and divisive, right? It's like people will sort of accept that from Dolly Parton because she's basically a living American saint. Like she funded <laughs> she she funded your coronavirus vaccine. If you have kids in America, it's entirely possible that she sends them books every month. 
But most people can't actually walk that line. And it's, I mean, it's a hard decision to make. Um, you know, there's Republicans buy movie tickets too, and Republicans buy sneakers too, to quote Michael Jordan. Um, I like it on that same sort of primitive level when stars, they're just like us, uh, but except <laughs> in the sense of like buying cereal, they vote the way that we do. It's, you know, it makes you feel good when a famous person affirms your choices. But, you know, the sort of need for that and the need to turn artists into sort of purely adjuncts or tools of the Democratic or Republican Party actually feels to me like it kind of limits the political power of what art can do. You know, I I was thinking about this recently. Um, there's a novelist called Tori Peters who has a really interesting book out, um, Detransition Baby. And, you know, Peters herself is a trans woman. And the novel is about a trans woman, her ex-girlfriend who detransitioned after a violent attack and is now living as a man again, and her ex's new girlfriend who gets accidentally pregnant, even though the character who has detransitioned assumes that he, and I'm using male pronouns because that's what the character uses in the books, assumes that he's infertile. And detransition is a really politically charged subject to talk about. It's something that is, you know, sort of weaponized against trans people to say that, you know, folks who want to transition won't stick with the decision. Um, it's, you know, sort of a weapon against people getting medical care that they want and need. And you know, for Peters to be able to sort of take it on in a novel, you know, she just gets to say a bunch of things about people's relationships, their gender identity, why someone might detransition that are just unspeakable in conventional politics, right? And that's a really useful, interesting, distinct role for art to play, to say things and raise subjects that are not viable for discussion in conventional political spaces. And so, if politics is downstream of culture, to quote the late Andrew Breitbart, you know, culture needs to be able to say something distinct. Like, if you want to flip that, that's okay, but you're going to get art that's, like, a lot less interesting and weird and varied um, if art now has to be downstream of and compliant with politics as opposed to the reverse. Let's take a break on that note and, and return to that theme. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. So I think that's like such a rich subject, right? And it implicates so many different um, things about, I think not just about art, right? But about sort of genre, right? That like one thing that you can often do that, that I think you really saw with Ellen, right? Is like, it's a sitcom. So like sitcoms basically make, make people likable. That's like, like the formal property of, of sitcoms, I think, like on, on network television. And so you put a gay character at the center of a sitcom and you're doing like the political work of just like humanizing, right? Yep. Et cetera. Or you can look at something like, like Will and Grace that I think, you know, looking back on it is a kind of, um, broad stereotype reinforcing uh, portrayal of, of gay men, but it's still like, they're humanized. It, it, they're still likable because it's a sitcom, yeah. right? And that's like part of how you drive social change, which is different from like a, a sophisticated novel, yeah. right? Which doesn't doesn't do political work in that same kind of like easy way. Like here we have like a category of marginalized people and we want to make them funny and likable and just in your living room once a week. So now your political opinions will become more correct yeah. right but like the whole reason people like literary fiction 
I mean, to the extent that they do, is <laughs> like like it's supposed to be difficult, right? Like not not like oh, this is hard to read, but it's like you can like have characterizations and 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 texture and depth that is like more sophisticated than a yeah. sitcom. Well, I think television drama works the same way. I mean, something mm-hmm. like The Americans, which you know takes the Cold War and kind of flips it on its head and makes you spend a bunch of seasons thinking, like, why would people be attracted to Soviet ideology and sort of embrace, like, that worldview to an extent that they build their entire lives in service of it, even when that means participating in this massive deception, right? I mean, you can do different things with more time and with different genre requirements, for sure. I think there's no question about that. Well, and also, though, like... It just seems like it would be like the wrong question to ask about the Americans is like, does this support the correct conclusion about Cold War politics in the 1980s? Like, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm like kind of a hack and I, like I could make an argument that it does, <laughs> but like it's not it's like not what it's about. Yeah. Right. I mean, even though obviously it is about the Cold War in the 80s, um, like somebody, you know, like John Lewis Gaddis could write a book. Whose like point is like what should you think about the Cold War in the 1980s? Right. And I don't think that a TV drama is like a substitute or a counterpoint to that exactly. Well, I also think it's worth saying like all political questions aren't necessarily framed in terms of policy or partisan ideology, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, The Americans, to the extent that it's a political show, is a show that's literally about shaping your entire life around ideology, right? And that's, I mean, that is a political question, right? Like to what extent. Do you want your life to be governed by the ideological positions that you hold? Um, and the answer to it is sort of nuanced and complicated, right? The characters find, a, or at least, you know, some of them find an enormous amount of meaning in living out these political commitments in a really deep way. And others find that that is sort of unbearable, that you can't make all of, like, you cannot make all of your romantic or sexual or parental decisions in accord with sort of a larger commitment. And the show doesn't have one answer to the question of like, is it possible or desirable to live your life this way? It has a lot of them. And that's part of what's interesting about it. In a way, The Americans is sort of a great show to watch, to think about our present moment and the sort of push for, you know, total ideological consistency in all areas of life. Which is not to say that, you know, I think we're we're all doing the equivalent of like living undercover. <laughs> as fake Americans. But it's it's definitely an interesting show to watch and think about if you're thinking about the overall role of ideology in your life. Yeah, because I mean, because it's so deliberately extreme, right? Yeah. It's like a thought experiment, right? It's like, what if literally everything you did yeah. was in service to a political cause, right? And then and then you see that like it's it's exhausting for some. It leads others to do things that strongly violate common sense. Yep morality and then you can ask yourself well is it true that what makes this problematic is the underlying wrongness of the ideology or is it that like that level of fanaticism itself exactly right and again like you know not all political questions are reducible to democratic and republican um and that's i think sort of a narrow way to think about politics in general well, I think this is the other thing, you know, I mean, you know, not everything is, is reducible to partisan politics. There's also such a large arena of politics yep. that is, I'm going to say, like, not relevant to, to culture, but that tends not to come up in these discussions. Like, like a lot of what they do in Congress is they talk about tax rates. They talk about Medicaid federal matching formulas. They talk about labor regulations. And I feel like most of the pop cultural politics focuses very much on identity questions and, and social issues, which are, of course, important, and they're important to people and to their to their lives. But you would have a you would have a like an impoverished understanding of like, like what is happening in American politics, if you actually thought that like all there was is to politics is the stuff that is discussed in controversies related to the Oscars. Yeah. Um, But I also think you see increasingly in politics an attempt to, you know, 
reduce these questions to cultural ones, right? I mean, there's a reason that you have a huge conservative blow up over this, you know, the Seuss Foundation deciding not to keep six Dr. Seuss books in print, right? Like there is a, there is an interest in fighting the culture war on the right as much as, you know, not even more as on the left, right? Like Christy Mm -hmm. Nome is trying to score points by like getting in Twitter feuds with little Nas Um, Matt Gates, all of his other issues aside, is like fundamentally a podcaster who has a side job as a congressman. <laughs> and there is there is a strong inclination on the right to essentially like turn this stuff into the substance of the party because that's kind of what worked well for Trump. Right. Without, again, any sort of underlying theory about what cultures work on behalf of conservative ideas should be doing, right? Like Ross Dathed is the lone conservative in the country who has like an actual cultural program. Yeah. And I mean, it's, um, I mean, it's like, it's an interesting move by Republicans, right? And, and it feels, at least my read of it though, is that it's like a very um, cynical and, and sort of instrumental, right? That like the yeah. reason they wanted to talk so much about Dr. Seuss is that there was a popular legislative proposal pending in Congress. That was going to give Americans many, many, many dollars. Right. And they they didn't want to vote for it because that would validate Joe Biden as a bipartisan healer, but they also didn't want to call attention to their opposition to it. So they wanted to have an argument about a different kind of thing, which is fine. I mean, their their job is to try to win elections for themselves. Um, But I feel like there's something, you know, that it that it does it does a specific kind of political work to like completely blur the lines between, you know, a critique of the possibly real like racial subtext of old Dr. Seuss books and electoral politics, right? That like that, that, that is a way of obscuring economic policy debates in a way that advantages, you know, fairly specific actors um and i've never heard i I assume a lot of rich celebrities um would prefer to pay lower taxes um but nobody but nobody gets like yelled at for that in the in the same kind of way that jk rowling does you know because it it doesn't it doesn't impact people yeah like in the in the same visceral way even though of course like fiscal policy makes a big difference in the world. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, look, art is both politically powerful and easy to talk about a lot because it feels personal, right? Like it's in your Mm -hmm. home. It's, you know, it's the world's judgment reflected back at you, right? And if you're like a middle-aged white guy, that reflection has been pretty flattering for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, if you are a woman who doesn't look a certain way, if you are you know, if you're non-white, if you're trans, if, you know, if you're religious, historically, you either don't see yourself at all or have seen yourself, often seen yourself in ways that are cruel or demeaning or dismissive or warped. And that's, you know, I think that really grinds on people. And I think that, you know, for folks who've been really underrepresented, again, take trans folks, something like um, FX's Pose, which is coming to an end, that was made, you know, largely by trans people of color, like seeing yourself presented generously in a piece of art that is made by people who share your experience can be a really lovely personal experience, even if it's not world changing, right? Like even if it doesn't get the Equality Act passed. And I don't think for the most part, people mistake cultural change as sort of equivalent or a substitute good for material political change. I do think that Hollywood has been extremely eager to blur that distinction in part because it is a fantastic marketing thing for them. And it's a way of blunting criticism. Um, There has been, you know, just as much as critics have tried to sort of defend their profession by talking about the importance of art, like if you are promoting an Oscar movie now, like it's it's not just like the wine and dine thing anymore. It's like this movie is significant and this is why. This movie, you know, 
there are almost always sort of issue campaigns that now accompany Oscar movies. There was sort of a blow up when Carrie Mulligan, who stars in a very, very good Promising Young Woman, suggested that a review that talked a little bit about her appearance was you know, sexist. And she really kind of dug in on this. And the review was fairly mild. Um, you know, it's like largely positive about the movie. It makes a point that like, given that it's a movie that sort of plays with characters' expectations of the female main character, that maybe audiences would have expected someone who looks a little bit different. And she really successfully weaponized the charge of sexism against a turned out to be like a gay male, fairly feminist critic (laughs) um, in ways that, you know, work to her advantage, right? Like let her talk about sort of a personal instance of sexism in a movie that is about sexism and violent misogyny that, you know, and I was sort of amazed that there was not more defense of the critic in question. But this is a real flipping of the the power dynamic that's related to some of the yeah. economic changes that we've been talking about, right? I mean, it used to be that even if even if like the movie stars are much richer yeah. than the movie critics for, you know, mid-sized daily papers. Siskel and Ebert still matter. They have power. Right. They, they have a lot of power, right? Because Hollywood would put out like a bunch of movies. People would actually like read the reviews. Yep. Some things would come from word of mouth. And now it's not like that, right? Like stars can communicate with fans. I mean, just, just like do Don- directly. I mean, one thing, right. you, one thing you've actually seen in glossy magazines is the rise of like the way you get Beyonce on the cover of Vogue is that she gets to like write and guest edit the issue. There is not you know, a journalist interlocutor who is asking her questions, who's doing actual reporting. Um, The sort of interview style, like stars on stars interviews have become unbelievably common in the mainstream press. It's the same as like Trump, right? Disintermediated the like gatekeepers of conservative politics, right? And he could talk directly to GOP primary voters. Yes. On Twitter or by, you know, Colleen Limbaugh or Hannity yeah. or whatever. I mean, he gets to sort of set the programming. And Karen Mulligan's not like the most famous person in the world, right? But it turns out it's like you, it's, it's hard to even go after her. Yeah. And she can, she can fight back. And, and like a really big star is like almost untouchable on a certain level. Yeah. And I think that, um, there has been this really strong tendency for, you know, even big companies that, um, have vexing business interests abroad to sort of position this stuff or themselves as, you know, politically untouchable or politically important. You know what I mean? Disney will do basically anything to get a movie into China because there is an enormous amount of, I mean, there were an enormous number of movie going dollars to be had there even before the pandemic made China the first place to open its theaters back up at like 75% capacity. You know, it's like, I don't know that there is anything Disney could do domestically that would be as impactful as kind of tacitly giving the okay to what's going on to, you know, Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Um, Netflix censor stuff because Saudi Arabia and India tell them to. Um, there is a tendency to think about sort of the politics of corporations and particularly corporations involved in entertainment on sort of very case-by-case domestic basis, uh, when in fact, this is an international market where the decisions that these corporations are making abroad are as consequential, if not more consequential, abroad than they are at home. Um, And I don't think the American political discussion of culture weighs that particularly well or particularly comprehensively. Well, and it it reveals the extent to which, like, this stuff is is business. Yeah. Right. That that, you know, the the audience that matters most for Disney is younger and more urban than the median American. Yeah. Whereas the audience that matters most for a Senate election is like older and more rural than the median American. And Disney's content like reflects that yeah. fact. It is it is it is left of center in the American political context. China is a totally different set of business considerations. And there's there's not like an underlying point of of principle, right? And you know, people people will ask, like, well, like, why is the NBA so invested in certain social causes in the United States and has a very different perspective in China? And again, I mean it's because 
you know, certain topics matter more to those athletes because they impact them and their families directly and they care a lot about them, but also people like to make money. And that's, you know, I mean, I think it, you know, to sort of bring this all back home, like we all have our parochial political concerns, right? Like you and I care about zoning in DC in a way that like we would never expect (laughs) a major entertainment corporation to care about. Um, But almost none of us, even those of us who crave consistency and the ability to adhere to our politics consistently and comprehensively, almost none of us have like a truly global, comprehensive political worldview that we care about enough to enforce it in every area of our lives. And you know, the desire to eliminate kind of immediate surface dissonance makes sense. It's like people, it makes sense that people don't want to give money to other people who have positions that they think are harmful or drive them nuts. But like, no one is sitting there like in the supermarket Googling who all of like Barilla Pasta's suppliers are, right? Like almost none of us have a worldview that's that comprehensive. And so... You know, I think that the concentration of political discussion in culture makes sense for economic reasons. It makes sense for sort of proximity and visibility reasons. But the the quest for total constancy there ends up revealing in some ways sort of how inconstant we are in our broader lives. Well, and this is also, I mean, I guess where I think some of the cross pressures in criticism can go a bit awry, right? That like some of the most like like impactful art will deal with questions that are that are distant to you yep. as a member of the audience, right? Like it can be a way to make you care. Yep. Right. To get emotionally invested in something that doesn't actually impact you personally, which is like the opposite of getting mad about something over the things you were already the most geared up. So, you know, like I live in America. So of course, like I had really strong feelings about American electoral politics. And like, I don't, in in my like actual day-to-day life, I don't spend a lot of time like thinking about Uyghurs, right? Or, Or the domestic policy of China. Not because I don't like objectively understand that it's important what happens there, but like I'm human, right? And like all people, I see what's right in front of my face. And it's so like the thing that storytelling can can do is like bring you into these things that are distant, right? Which is different from uh like the like the pressures of like, I just like want to make content that people will click on, right? Which means connecting everything to the most immediate concern. Yeah. I just think being open to being surprised by art is a more enjoyable way to consume it. Yeah, I've been watching this HBO Max show, Generation, um, that's about students at a high school in a sort of somewhat more conservative California community. And I found it really lovely in part because it makes me feel old and anachronistic. (laughs) Um, It is, you know, the... There are scenes that kind of make fun of old style, very earnest gay straight alliances. Um, And, you know, you have a main character who is, you know, gay and femme and also captain of the water polo team. And like all of the guys on his team just like bro out or like his friends and super supportive and nice. And it's like it is so distant from what I was growing up with in high school, you know, 20 years ago at this point. It makes me feel like elderly and sort of square, but it's also just like a really sweet testimony to how much stuff has changed for the better. You know, uh, I think probably the best novel I've read this year is Patricia Lockwood's No One Is Talking About This, which is, you know, this sort of journey into the first half of the novel is written from the perspective of a character who's like totally addicted to the internet. And the second half of the novel is about her experiences when she gets off it because of a big family tragedy. And it's just awesome. It's so well done. The sort of shift in voice, the capturing of like what it's like to be mainlining Twitter all day. And again, that's not something that people would think of as like a conventionally political novel, but it's about a question that I think a lot of us have, which is like, how much time are we spending online? What is it doing to our brains? Do we like it? And those bigger questions are really important. They're actually ultimately probably more important to how we live our lives 
and how we experience the world every day than the sort of more obvious partisan, like, let's, you know, turn ourselves into rats getting hits of dopamine by getting mad on the internet stuff. Um, What builds power in a culture war, right? Like, so many of these discussions are a discussion about representation is sort of downstream from the question of like who gets money to make movies or how does this economic mm-hmm. system that is set up to create art make it really hard for people to break in because it involves work that's sort of contingent contract based all the time and like doesn't necessarily provide a steady source of income. And that's open to a lot of labor. And as we saw in with Me Too, a lot of sexual abuses, right? Like how do you you know, how do you change the system so it can be more economically viable and sort of less damaging as a professional environment? And then downstream from that, how does that change the art that results? You know, something like one thing that frustrated me about the Dr. Seuss fight, and um, my colleague Sunny Bunch had sort of what I thought was a good column about this, about um, how there should be sort of a copyright mechanism for copyright holders to surrender their work um, mm-hmm. and let someone else continue to publish it if they don't want to benefit from it. You know, wouldn't it have a much bigger impact on racial equity if the Dr. Seuss Foundation said, we are taking all of the royalties from these books in perpetuity forever and donating them to, you know, the Literature Center at this historically Black college or university, right? These conversations do not often center on, like, how the most material good can be extracted from these conversations, when in fact, there are opportunities for turning kind of surface cultural war issues into opportunities for sort of material and substantive advancement that aren't necessarily connected to the core questions of, you know, who's depicted, how are they depicted, who gets to make this, but that could have an impact on a lot of these issues in the long run. I that's a that's a great great place to stop. I mean, I hope nobody um, you know, feels that spending time on the internet is 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 a bad way to uh, <laughs> to spend your life. Um, you know, Patricia Lockwood's book is great. Um, but you know, if you want to listen to more podcasts, that's that's always a good a good way to respond. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Alyssa Rosenberg, The Washington Post. Uh, check out her her columns and everything out there. Um, and thanks, as always, to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Janakis, and The Weeds will be back on Tuesday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.